Well, again, welcome to Harvest uh, Community Church this morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, if you are newer here to Harvest, we are so glad that you're here with us this morning as we continue working through the book of Isaiah. Um, we are in the midst of a, a hard season. And, and by we, I mean, anyone could say that, right? Like just this last year and a half, two years, there have been a lot of hard and challenging things. There's been a lot of struggle, things going on in our world, and then also just knowing things individually, what, what's happened in our lives. But when I say we are in the midst of the hard season, um, I want to talk about just the church in the West, that, that we, the church in the West, are in the midst of a hard season. Uh, never in my lifetime if I met with or if I heard stories from pastor or youth pastor after pastor of just hearing about how divided their churches are in this last season. Uh, never before have I heard so many stories of people that were lifelong friends, but due to conversations or some Facebook post or something that happened the last time they got together, now they haven't talked to each other in months. Brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, never before have I seen so many people leave churches for another church or leave the church altogether. And thankfully, globally, this is not a problem currently, but for the church in the West, but specifically in our nation, this is, this is widespread right now. And for me, this has been something that's brought sadness. Uh, it's brought frustration. And I wonder for those of us here this morning if you have felt that same sadness at times if there are relationships that you have that have been strained or you even wonder if you and this other person will ever talk again, if there's been anger, if there's been frustration. Where we're at in Isaiah, in the time period where we find um, the prophet, as, as we find this text addressing God's people, these people are exiles. They are in a land that's not their own. Their, their homeland has been destroyed. The promised land that had all this blessing of the Lord, they've been removed from there. They've been sent into another nation. And there's a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of uh, feeling lost. There's a lot of asking the question, God, where are you at? And is there any way for us to go back? Now, I am not comparing to what our church or what the church is going through in the West to what God's people are going through in this passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah. I think that that would be a stretch at best uh, and dishonoring both to the text and also <laughs> dishonoring to what God brought his people through. But I am saying this, that I think the solution, the remedy, and the hope for both God's people then and for God's people now is that we need good news. We need the gospel. We need good news that is so extravagant. We need good news that is so grand, so magnificent, that not only does it change us from the inside out, but it changes how we live in the rest of the world, how we view the people around us. And that is what the church needs right now. We need to remember our home that is the gospel. And so this morning harvest, I wrestled through, where do I go in this passage? Because this is such two beautiful chapters. And, and my hope for us this morning is that we would remember what God has done. And then we would get a vision for how we live out of that from there. 
what God has promised to do in the future. And in the waiting before that day comes where evil and sin is removed forever, how do we live in that waiting as God's people? I hope maybe you don't, nothing that I say stands out to you this morning, but I hope these words just leap off the pages of Isaiah. That God speaks straight to our core as people who need good news. So to that end, would you pray with me that that would happen in our midst? Lord God, we are in desperate need of what only you have to offer. And Lord, as we have worked our way through Isaiah, there have been moments of just uh, of sadness in this book. Moments of like, oh my gosh, how could things get any worse? And then there have been just bright beacons of hope too. Lord, we need your good news. We need to remember what you have done in us, what you are calling us to, and where we're going. We thank you that it's only you that accomplishes this. Help us, Lord, to increase our faith, increase our hope in you, and to be captivated by your good news this morning. In your name, amen. Starting at 61, we're going to get a couple different voices through these two chapters. There's either two to three voices that kind of emerge in the text. And the first voice that emerges here is the voice of a familiar character that we've been introduced to in the book of Isaiah. It's the voice of the servant, the one whom Yahweh is sending to his people. 61 verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. This servant announces that he is coming. He is going to show up. And right away we see who he is coming for the brokenhearted, the poor, the oppressed, those who are in captivity, those who are oppressed by darkness. That's who he's coming for, and he says what he's going to do, that he's going to bind up those broken hearts. He's, he's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He's going to set the captives free. If you've been tracking with us in Isaiah, we already have come to realize and to know Greg let the cat out of the bag, that this servant is Jesus, right? The, the text hasn't said that exclusively yet. Greg went there. But if you were to keep reading in your Bibles, if you were to continue reading through Isaiah, and you made your way to the New Testament, and you made your way to the book of Luke, Scripture itself would tell us that the Messiah, the Christ, this servant, is Jesus, and the amazing thing is that Jesus makes this claim about himself. In Luke chapter 4, it says this, He went to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus drops the mic and says, this servant you've been waiting for, this year of the Lord's favor, this time is upon you now, and it's because I am he. This is who I've come to save, and this is how I'm going to do it. The interesting, though, if you're, if you're reading and you notice these two passages, Jesus does something that's interesting here. He, he reads through verse 2, but only part of the way through. He cuts off the second half. He, he, says, uh, he talks about these two different periods of time. He says, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Isaiah 61 says, um, and also the day of vengeance for our God. But Jesus leaves off that second half. Interesting. And kind of like a church no-no, right? Like you're supposed to read through the whole verse, Jesus. Like what are you doing here? Thankfully, because we know that he is Jesus, we know this is not without intentionality. But first, let's just look at, those, at that verse, those two periods of time. If we could pull up Isaiah 61, just the verse 1 and 2 again. I think it's back a slide. First, we get the year of the Lord's favor, and then we get the day of vengeance of our God. And so what the author in Isaiah is doing is contrasting two periods of time. One, not being actually a physical year, but a length of time. A longer period of time, a year to a day. Two time periods that will happen, and this day is this shorter period of time that will also take place. When Jesus says to the people in the synagogue that day, and then to us as well as we read it, that today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he's saying the year of the Lord's favor, favor or the era of the Lord's favor is upon you now. This time has come now. And there's so many like cool connections to the Old Testament in Leviticus 25 that this year of the Lord's favor is really like a picture of the year of Jubilee that God would set out for his people to have where it was a, a year and a time period of captives being set free where atonement for sins and forgiveness of debts and people dwelling in the land and being blessed by the Lord would take place. But we don't have time to get into all that now and all those connections that happen. But go read Leviticus 25 with these things uh, in mind. It's so cool to see what, what the author of Isaiah is doing and then what Jesus is doing here in Luke. Jesus is saying, though, this, this time period has been inaugurated. It is starting. It is upon you now because I am here. The servant has come. This is fulfilled. But he doesn't include this day of vengeance because that hasn't been fulfilled yet which kind of just makes logical sense. It's still a time period that will happen in the future. But in Jesus' first coming, as it says in John 3, 17, he came into the world to save the world, not to condemn the world. In his first coming, we see this period of time of God's patience, God's compassion, God drawing people to himself with his sacrificial love. And for us here in this room, we are still in this time period. We are still in the year of the Lord's favor. But there is a day coming where God will respond to sin and evil forever. Where the day of vengeance of our God will take place. Where there will be judgment. And we don't know when that time is. We don't know when it will come. But there's good news that we're in this era right now of the Lord's favor. 
And until Jesus comes back again this second time for the day of the Lord or the day of vengeance, we see that Jesus is still binding up the brokenhearted. He's still preaching good news to the poor. He's still giving sight to the spiritually blind. He's still setting captives free from sin and death. This is the mission of Jesus. This is the mission of our God. And as we'll see later in this passage, this also is the mission that God gives to his people, that God says, join me in this. I think as Christians, we can be distracted from that mission in the time period that we're in now because all over our world, there's, there's conversations that are being had of who's broken and who's not. Who's deserving of compassion and who's not? Who should, be, who should we be patient with and who should we not? But if we see this text, we see the heart of Jesus, we, we recognize, as Andrew said last week, that people are deeply broken, deeply riddled with sin. And Jesus is calling us to see people that way, how he sees them, to see everyone in need of good news. That news, news anchor that you hate needs the good news. That person who has drastically different views from you and you disagree with everything they say, they need the good news. They need the patience and compassion of God. Those people that otherwise you would never spend any time with, they are broken and they need the good news. And we remember that when we remember that's where Jesus found me. And that's where he still calls me to himself in my brokenness to be made new. Because Jesus shows, the servant shows who he has come for, that should drastically change how we view the world and how we view people. People not like us. Partway through verse 2. The servant says, To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of spirit and despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. The servant says what he's going to provide for the people of Zion, the people who will dwell in the land and dwell with their God, and their God will dwell with them, that where only there should be ashes, mourning, and despair, instead you will find the exact opposite because of what the servant provides, that you will find rejoicing, that you will find beauty, that you will find gladness. This is the picture of the upside-down kingdom where to the world it makes no sense to see people that are hurting, that are struggling, that are suffering, some, somehow still have hope. And as this passage says, this displays the splendor of our God, that, that this people of Zion will be like oak trees planted with deep roots. And you can just imagine the leaves and the beauty. We're in like the best season right now of fall and when the leaves change color. And it's just this myriad of colors. It's displaying, that's like what God's people are like, displaying how good and how awesome he is. This is the upside-down kingdom splendor of the Lord, beauty of God that calls us to love our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us, that calls us to consider others better than ourselves. 
This is what God calls the people of Zion to be like, and it will display what he's like, where instead there should be ashes and mourning and despair. Instead, there's a people that are reflecting the Lord in the world. Verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. A couple weeks ago, uh, when Greg was preaching, there was a, a similar theme. Uh, and I think he said that God is calling his people to join his rebuilding project. That God is in the process of making all things new. God is in the process of bringing all in creation into alignment with his kingdom. And here again, we see the servant says, these people, they will do this. They will be a part of this rebuilding project. Not they might or they could or when they have the time, they'll join me in this. No, they will. My people will be identified as such. Those who join in bringing this restoration to the world where places were once desolate, where there once was despair. My people come in with the life that I have given them. These same people that were broken, that were brokenhearted, that were poor, that were blind, that were oppressed. It's these people that the servant chooses to bring alongside him into the kingdom and declare who our God is and to display his splendor. It's these people who create homes for the orphan. It's these people who are family to the widow. It's these people who create places of belonging for the rejected. It is these people who will be the support to those who otherwise would be neglected. And we get this picture in this passage, too, that, that the, these people, this people of Zion, are joined by the rest of the nations. It says that they're joined, and they are working in the fields, and they are tending to the flocks. And this is a reversal of what's happening for Israel right now, that they right now are serving the nations, and one day... They will come alongside with the nations and they will be served by them as well. But I also think this is a picture of the unity and harmony of the kingdom of nations working together, a multi-ethnic people brought together by the Lord. And we'll see that later in this passage as well. That these people of Zion, their identity now is priest. A theme that is carried from Exodus where God says, they will be my royal priesthood those that have direct access to their God. And these priests also, they will minister or they will serve the people. And that these people that once should just be filled with disgrace and shame, instead it is replaced with the joy of the Lord. They will rejoice for what their God has done. In verse 8, we see the voice shift from the, spirit, the, the servant to that of Yahweh, the Lord. Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. 
Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. The Lord says here, I love justice. And it's because of God's love for justice and his creation that he will right the wrongs of the oppressors causing evil against the weak and the poor. God says, I will respond to this. I will do this. I think sometimes we wonder, God, do you even see this awful thing? God says, I love justice. When wrongdoing has been done, I see it, and I will bring about a righteous judgment. And he says to this, these people, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, an everlasting relational contract with them, that I will never leave them or forsake them. And again, it's these weary, these broken, these poor people who have nothing to offer that God says he will do this with. And that once these people, though they were viewed as low by the nations, by the rest of the world, God will lift them up. God will raise them up to the point where the nations look at this people who have gathered, been gathered by the Lord and they say, these people must be blessed. They must have the favor of Yahweh. Verse 10, the voice again seems to shift back to that of the servant. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me in, with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations." The servant here is describing like what he's clothed with, what he comes bearing, and it's this righteousness and salvation. He says, man, I am decked out like a bridegroom on his wedding day. I'm adorned, but I'm decked out like, like a bride who has these beautiful jewels that just make her radiant. But it's not with the things of this world that the servant comes adorned or showing his radiance. It's with righteousness and salvation, which is such a contrast to Isaiah 53, one of the earlier times that we're introduced to the servant, where all the world can see when they look at the servant, when they look at Jesus, is someone who's despised and rejected. Someone that they shouldn't be drawn to. Someone that doesn't have any beauty or majesty about them. That they should bend a knee or that they should follow him. That the physical things of this world isn't, isn't how the servant comes to draw people to himself. But how he does it is through his righteousness and through his salvation. And that for those whose eyes have been opened to see him for who he truly is, they are caught in the majesty of how beautiful this servant truly is. At the end there, the servant rejoices because this seed that has been like a theme throughout Isaiah, this holy seed that once God's people was this grand tree, but it has been leveled down to a stump. But now there's this shoot that has sprung up from this stump. This holy seed, this holy shoot now is going to take root in the ground and the, the servant knows it will grow. 
Yahweh will see that this will happen and what will happen as it grows, praise and rejoicing will spring up before all nations. In chapter 62 here, as we dive in, there could be another voice change here. It could be this like prophetic voice that kind of emerges. Um, and that's kind of where I was leaning when I first was diving into this. And it also could be the servant continuing to talk. And I'm almost kind of more in that place now. I don't know. I'm not sure um, whose voice it actually is. But as we see in this next section, if it is the servant's voice, in the same way that he is clothed in this salvation, this righteousness, he wants to be a mediator for God's people so that they might be clothed in this same salvation and righteousness. So let's read it and see if that might be true, or even if it is this prophetic, uh, prof, this prophetic voice that emerges. We see that this is the heart of our God, that this is what he wants to do in the people of Zion. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your name or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah in your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. At the start here, whether it's the voice of the servant or this prophetic voice, they say, for the sake of Zion or for Zion's sake, I want to see these people delivered. I want to see them vindicated. Vindicated. I see this picture of like a lawyer talking to their defendant. And the lawyer is saying, I am going to see you through this. I will bring about this vindication. I will speak on your behalf until you get to go free and your name has been cleared. But also here we see that whether it's this servant or, or this prophetic voice that that the Lord, the servant, wants his people to be clothed in this salvation and this righteousness in the same way that the servant is, that that would be what we as people come bearing as well. Paul words it this way of, of the servant's uh, commitment or Yahweh's commitment to his people in Philippians 1.6, being confident confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That we have a God who is committed to his people, committed to see them come to completion, committed to continually draw them to himself, continually save them from sin and death, continually produce this righteous way of living that on our own we cannot. And God's commitment to his to pe people is not dependent on how good they are, how much they know, how much they sin or not. His commitment to them is because of his goodness, because of his promise and his covenant. Here, the speaker says that the Lord will give you a new name. 
the Lord will give you a new identity. That who you used to be, you will not be anymore. There's going to be a reversal here. How people once viewed you, that's not going to be you. And with that, it's going to lead to a new way of living, a new way of being, because the Lord has given you a new name in him. That their name once was a people deserted, but now the name the Lord gives them is that the Lord delights in you. Just like Liam was saying to open our service, what amazing news that our God delights in his people. The other name he gives them is that once you were a people whose land was desolate, a wasteland. Now your name is that your land will be married to your God. That where you dwell, your God will dwell with you there. This is this picture of Zion, that they will be a people who's both married to their God, their God married to them, and married to the place in which they live together. This uh, metaphor of marriage kind of continues in, the, in those last verses, in verses 4 and 5. And, and there's some confusing wording there that happens in this passage. But the gist of what the speaker is saying is that just like a young man and a young woman come together in marriage and they dwell together, so you will be married to your God and he will be married to you in the place that you will dwell. You will dwell together then it talks about your sons being married to him as well. And this, this is the picture of these future generations that will come and also dwell with the Lord in Zion. This is the news that we have heard and received as well. Verse 6. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. The speaker says that the Lord has posted these watchmen, or the servant has posted these watchmen who are on the lookout. They're on the lookout until the saving work of Yahweh is completed until the day where their Lord returns to dwell with them in Zion forever. And the speaker says, do not rest. Call out to God until this is completed. Call out to the Lord and say, Lord, would you bring about this promise? Lord, would you redeem your people? Lord, would you come back now? Things are so messed up. We have strayed so far that there are to be people that this is always on their mind and on their hearts. That as they go through their life, as they're posted as these watchmen, they are constantly calling to God. And then the text says something crazy as well. It's poetic, but it's still crazy. 
that they should have no rest, but you should also not give Yahweh rest. It's this picture uh, like the parable that Jesus tells of, of the neighbor who needs bread, and he goes to his neighbor's house, and he knows that he has bread that he can share with him, and he knocks at his door, even though it's late at night, until finally, even though that neighbor's in his bed, he comes out to give him what he knows only this neighbor can provide. He doesn't cease in his asking and his calling because he knows that the neighbor has what he needs. That the people of Zion, the people of God, are supposed to be this same way. We're to emulate these watchmen and call out to God in all circumstances, in the good and the bad, and say, Lord, would you come back? Lord, would you complete this? Lord, would you bring salvation and redemption to your people, to your world? I think Greg has said this, and I, I know I've said this at times, that in this last season of life, we've just heard so many different people, different Christians say, gosh, I want Jesus to come back. And that's a really good sentiment to have. That's a really good thing that should be on our minds and our hearts that should be produced out of this season as we look out to our world and we just see how messed up things are. And really, to our world, not just what's going on in, in Camas or, or in the Pacific Northwest or, or in our nation, but gosh, as we look to the world, the things that don't even make our news stations, the atrocities that are happening, we should be saying, Jesus, come back. But I don't know about you, but because of where we live, we live in the suburbs. The suburbs were built so that you would have an easy way of living, that you would be comfortable, and that life would be good and you'd get to live into the American dream. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but even for me, as I've lived in Camas and now I've gotten married in Camas and have a home in Camas and now have a son in Camas, I have felt my heart go, gosh, this is really good. This could be as good as it gets. I just feel the draw of comfort to want the white picket fence, to want the good job, to want the, the savings, the retirement. And those aren't bad things, but it's so quickly a slippery slope to put our hope in those things and not remember that our true hope is that Jesus comes back and sets everything right. That what we need, what our world needs, is the Savior to return and deal with sin and death and evil once and for all, removing all injustice, removing all wrongdoing, so that we might dwell with him in Zion with our God forevermore, praising and rejoicing him. So we should be saying, Jesus, come back. No matter how good or, or how bad life may seem, even in the suburbs. But with that, the other thing that I've seen in this last season of life is those that say, Jesus, come back. And yet they go then and huddle in their little groups or huddle in their little Christian circles and completely remove themselves from the world that is broken because they just can't take it anymore. They're just so annoyed with the people and the political climate that they remove themselves. But we see that that is not the mission that God gives his people in this passage. We see that, yes, they're to call to the Lord, call for his return, but they're also to call out to the nations as well. 
in verses 10, 11, and 12, um, Tim Mackey, uh, the guy that started the Bible project, he, he points out in his notes in Isaiah that there are so many connections to previous passages um, in Isaiah in just these three verses. Like, I don't have time to go through all of them, but there are all these callbacks to things that God has said he's going to do. And now they kind of come together as this crescendo, as this like beautiful moment of all these things throughout this book that God has promised to do. Here they all are together at once. Look at verse 10 again with me. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. This may be God speaking to his watchmen, but also probably it's just talking to the people in Zion, his people in general. That they're not just supposed to hide out in this city. They're supposed to open up the gates. They're supposed to make a highway. They're supposed to make a road, and they're supposed to remove the stones, the stumbling blocks, so that people can travel this highway to this city to dwell with God. They're supposed to raise a banner to the nations and call out to the nations and say, come and hear the good news that we have received. Come and see who our God is. Come and have hope that is everlasting because our God is coming back. That these people are supposed to wait for their God to return, but in the waiting, they're actively waiting. They are actively pursuing the nations. They're actively sharing this good news with all peoples, all time, all backgrounds, all races, so that there would be this multi-ethnic people that are brought together who sing out in one voice praise to Yahweh because he has done this. He has saved us. In the same way as the watchmen are, are to be calling out to our God and calling out to the nations, man, that is what we need to embody as the church right now. We need to constantly have no rest in saying, God, would you accomplish this? God, would you redeem us? Lord, would you seek and save the lost? Jesus, would you come back? And with that, join with our God in his rebuilding project, calling to the nations, preparing a way for people to hear the news, respond, and be saved. Verse 11. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. We end with this vision of the day where the servant, where Jesus returns to his people, where he comes back and he comes with his reward, the reward of knowing him, the reward of salvation and everlasting hope. But he also comes with his recompense, this, this thing that was alluded to in 61, the day of God's vengeance, where he will deal with sin and injustice and rebels once and for all forever. And they will be removed from God's creation so that the holy seed, the righteous remnant, may dwell with their God in Zion. There's no more sin, no more injustice, no more hopelessness but with praise, with joy, with thanksgiving, because their God has won and has accomplished this. They are holy people. 
a redeemed people, a people who is sought after by their God. They're no longer deserted. Their land is no longer desolate because the Lord dwells with them and he's made his dwelling with them forever. Brothers and sisters, this is our future. And this is also our reality now. The picture of Zion, God dwelling with his people in the land and, and the people dwelling with their God, falls under this category that scripture has a lot of the time of the already but not yet. Because as believers, we have a God because of what Christ has done, because of what the servant has done, that he has died and laid his life down and raised again so that we might have newness of life in him now, that we might actually uh, be made right with God and that God would give us his Holy Spirit so that he might indwell his people. This is our reality now as God's people. We have a taste of Zion, but there is a day in the future where Jesus comes back and he writes everything. And we will dwell in this place of Zion with our God forevermore. And we have that to look forward to. We have that to stake our hope on. But in the meantime, until that day comes, we wait. We wait for that day. And waiting for the believer does not come without struggle, does not come without hardship, does not come without hurt or sadness. There's plenty of that. But we are people who do not wait without hope. We wait with a sure and steadfast hope of the gospel, of this good news, because this is what God has done in us. God is mighty to save the broken, the weary, the oppressed, and to raise them up, to give them a new name, and call them, call them back to himself, to give them a new identity, to release them into the world, calling all nations to hear this gospel as well. So we wait and we call out to our God. This is our response, I think, to a lot of this news here, is, is be like the watchman call out to our God, long for his return, long for redemption to come. Do not rest, do not give him rest until it has happened. And also call out to the nations. Call out to the people that are totally unlike you. Capture Jesus's vision for who he came for, the broken, which, spoiler, is everyone. We see this in Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends back to the right hand of the Father in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to, or sorry, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Would this season that we've been in, would the, the hardship that the church in the West, that even our church, our church hasn't been unscathed in this last year and a half, two years, would it be that what's produced out of this is a renewed sense of the gospel, a renewed hope in the gospel that we need this to be true? We are staking everything on this. 
us. And because of that, our hope is not in the now. And what happens, what does or doesn't go our way, our hope is in our everlasting, good and gracious God who is coming back. And because of that, because of this good news, because he came to us who are weary and broken and lost and poor, that we take this good news to our neighbor. We take this good news to our workplaces. We take this good news to our families and to our friends, and we display and we declare what our God has done and what he has in store for us. So my question to end with is, are you captivated with the gospel? Is there anything that's getting away, getting in the way of you capturing this vision for both what God has done and what he has promised to do? Because all of us can repent and say, God, Lord, Lord, help me to see the gospel more clearly. Help me to live out the gospel in the way that you have said for your people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the one who came and for being the one who comes back. Lord, I just know that there have been so many things, even outside of this last season of life, so many things that just distract me from remembering what you have done in me, what you've done in your church. And then on top of that, Lord, there's so many things that have kept me from wanting to see many come to know you. Despite where they're at now, despite what they think, despite what they um, believe. Lord, would you help us here at Harvest to take hold of your good news? For the good news to take hold of us, to take hold of our lives, for it to burrow into the deepest places of our soul. And Lord, would we see coming out of this season as we go into the next, just a resurgence in your church for seeking and saving the lost like the servant, our great servant Jesus, that you did. Thank you, Lord, for being the one who made a way for us. And thank you that you are patient with us too, that we are in this era of your favor would we not just wait for the day that you come back, but would we actively wait and participate with your redemption in this world? In your name, amen.